Well, if you look, uh, if you've been paying attention in the news today, is Sanctity of Life Sunday. That is, it's the day, that yesterday was the anniversary of Roe versus Wade. And today is the day that we celebrate in churches across America the sanctity of human life. I wasn't able to get um, some photos for you, but you can go on Google. Um, and if you have children of a smaller age, you might want to um, not allow them to see some of these things. But there are pictures of what goes on in this, this um, atrocity called abortion. What should be a non-issue has divided our thinking in this country. People have suppressed the truth and denied reality. The Supreme Court currently affirms a woman's right to abortion with virtually no restrictions prior to fetal viability. After viability, it only allows states to make restrictions to viability that do not entail an undue burden. However, given the wideness of the Supreme Court's health exception, the state's ability to restrict Post-viability abortions is questionable. Thus, according to the current legal regime in the United States, the unborn is not protected by the U.S. Constitution from death by abortion at any stage in her nine-month gestation. And so what some would say we're taking giant steps forward is really a quantum leap backwards so far back to two millennia ago. If we think about the ancient world, it was incredibly open to killing children. There were almost no laws for children. In fact, family life, even if there was such a thing, certainly didn't revolve around children. Children, if, it, if I may generalize, says Kevin DeYoung, were useful at best, burdens at worst, and rarely coddled. But in the ancient world, the people of Israel didn't do abortion. And Christians started taking in babies who were left to die. Just this week, if you've been paying attention to national news, there's a doctor by the name of Kermit Gosnell, an abortionist who was recently arrested for murder in Philadelphia because he ran a baby mill. He would kill babies, and not just in the manner that seem less brutal, but in one instance, he had a high school student in charge of the procedure. He butchered scores of live babies and then killed them with scissors on the back of their neck. He's suspected of killing hundreds of live babies over his 30-year career, and he made in one year $1.8 million, to which the district attorney that's charging him says, I'm aware that abortion is a hot-button topic. Yeah. But as a district attorney, my job is to carry out the law. A doctor who cuts into the necks, severing the spinal cords of living, breathing babies who would survive with proper medical attention is now committing murder under the law. My question is, is this, where do we draw the line? Is it when they're outside the womb and they still need proper medical attention that they're now a living being, but inside the womb still needing proper medical attention and the care of a mother's body that's so divinely created that takes care of it? Where do we draw the line? People have suppressed this truth and deny reality, so much so, not in this state, unfortunately, but in other states, we can kill innocent babies and call it abortion and not, not write it off as killing a baby, but it's just a fetus. Yet when a woman who is pregnant has, a, has been killed, someone goes on trial for double murder in the truest sense of the word, and I use it in its Webster dictionary definition. I'm not trying to be funny. It's asinine. It is without thinking. It is animalistic. And yours truly used to play the game. Used to walk the line. Over here being pro-life, 
over here being pro-choice, and I used to walk right down the middle because it was, well, in vogue to be anti-abortion, but pro-choice. But I praise God for Dr. Jack Graham at Prestonwood Baptist Church who read these verses, touching verses, if you have children. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hemmed me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Moving on to the next, the third stanza. For you formed me in my inward part, and my inward parts were knitted together in my mother's womb. There's no confusion there. I praise you, for I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret in the womb, Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. Talking about the days of his life, they were formed for me, yet when there was not one of them. Why do you begin with Psalm 139 when you're teaching Genesis 2? Because this Genesis 2 is where that Psalm 139 all began. There is something special about human life versus animal life. I found it ironic last night watching the local news that there was a petition outside a pet store in Denver yesterday. Irony, Roe versus Wade, and we're going to petition the veterinarian who's putting to death sick puppies, and we're calling it a puppy mill, and we're calling it a Abuse of animals. And we don't even make mention. Of the baby mill. Human life is special. And our uniqueness is found in how we were made. So if you'll turn with me to Genesis 2.4. We'll look in that, at that in detail. You should have an outline in your handout of that chapter. The introduction of this section, the formation of man, the provision for man, the instruction to man and his companion. We're going to focus on God's creation. We're going to see it flourish. We're going to see our freedom. And we're going to see our function. What are we called to do? If last week's main point was with powerful words, the king of the universe created the earth good and for good, this week we could say with a potter's touch, compassionate creator made mankind special and specific with the capacity to serve him, the responsibility to enjoy him in a community of worship. In Genesis 2.4, it begins, These are the generations, the heavens, and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God had made the heaven excuse me, the earth and heavens. And it pretty much parallels 1-1. And so the author, Moses, the big A author, the Holy Spirit, and any person in that culture would have seen, oh, I'm seeing the connection. He's starting something new. These aren't in contradiction. These are complementary. And we see in that introduction, we also see a setting. When the when no bush was uh, was on the field and yet, in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For, given the reason that he's telling you this angle of creation, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. So we look back up and say, these are the generations. This is the key word in the book of Genesis, toledot. You'll see it again 
in 5.1. This is the generations of the book of Adam. You see it again in 6.9. These are the generations of Noah. You see it again in 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. And you see it again in 11.27. These are the generations of Terah. And each time we're going from the creation and we're narrowing it down. So we go from the creation of the universe to the creation, the account of the heavens and the earth, which focuses on man. And we just keep bringing it down to one man, Abraham, through which would come the blessings to the entire earth. And then we see, if you see in verse 5, you see a name change. For the Lord God. Some of your Bibles will have Lord in all caps. That's the Hebrew word Yahweh. If you were to go back in Genesis 1, 10 times, and God said, and God said, and Elohim said. Here it's a different angle. You get a different picture of this almighty God. You made the depths of the earth, and this almighty God, and you know my heart, and you love me the same. This is Yahweh. This is the great I am, Exodus 3.14. This is the God who is eternally existent and actively present. That is the definition of I am. It doesn't say I was, I will be, don't know who I am yet, trying to figure that out. God is not a God of confusion. He is not himself an open theist. He knows the beginning from the end because he has always existed. And so the way he sits up here and he sees everything, that's why David can write in Psalm 139, before I speak a word, you know it. He is eternally existent. He has always been, and he's actively present. He's not some distant landlord who doesn't really care about what's going on in his property. He's not some distant creator who just said, well, I just put it in motion. I'll let evolution take care of it. He is actively present. He is the Lord God. As Elohim is used, and God said ten times in Genesis 1, so the Lord God is used ten times in Genesis 2, 4 through 25. And you see, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going from the ground and was watering the whole face of the ground. And so he tells you and he kind of surrounds his purpose there. There are some subterranean waters where the grace of God was flowing to enrich the earth. There are still subterranean rivers today. I bet you didn't know this, but the Mojave Desert that we drove through has a river underneath it. We just want it to come up if we ever stall our car. So there's water there for us to drink. And so this God is... The same God of Genesis 1, it's the same account of creation. If, if the first one is chronological, day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6, day 7, this one is far more topical. The purpose, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain, and there was no man to work the ground. The author of the scripture creates his own need, and he's going to show you in the rest of this chapter. Where, where would this man come from to work this ground? He tells you. In verse 7. Doesn't wait till verse 25. He gives you the setting and then he gives you the reason. Then, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into him the breath of life. It is the language of the potter molding the clay. And when a potter molds the clay... He is deliberate and he is personal. That wheel is spinning and he's got his hands on it and he's making something for a purpose and he's doing it deliberately. We are not random chances from some impersonal force. And from the beginning, the Bible tells us mankind, humanity is made up of two parts. He's physical dust of the ground and he is immaterial, the breath of Life comes from God. Jesus confirms this in Matthew 10. Do not be afraid of him who can kill your life. Be afraid of him who can kill your life and your soul. There it is, the two parts of humanity. From beginning, from God, Jesus confirms it. There's no reason to discuss 
We are physical beings with immaterial parts, and the only reason we are alive is because God gives us breath of life. And when we are saved, the Holy Spirit gives us new life. And so here's this man created by God, and we trust the account here. We weren't there, but you can just imagine this compassionate creator bending down, and he forms man. It's interesting. He forms man, and he fashions woman. (laughs) He's forming man. And then he breathes on him. And man became a living being. Because the sovereign creator of the universe put a little bit of himself inside his creation. I didn't see that in Genesis 1 through 25. He created vast numbers. Let the earth bring forth living creatures. Let the sea teem. There's a reason. He wants you to see. Animals were not created special like that. They were spoken into existence and they came with great number. And it's like he slows down and he pauses and he makes one. And from one will come another. More on that in a few minutes. Physical being Spiritual life given by God. So now, God gives man the capacity to serve him. Here's this creation that needs somebody to, as we learned last week, subdue the earth and cultivate it. Here he is. And in verse 9 through 14, you're going to see this flourishing creation. You're going to see this abundant earth. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant, is the sight. He didn't have to create trees that were pleasant to sight. God wants us to enjoy Him. When you look at a tree, you go, that's pleasant to my sight. One of the things I've learned, and this is one of the good reasons of the many good reasons to be married, is that when you go on a jog with your wife, we didn't stop to smell the roses But we were jogging. We sure slowed down. And my wife said, look at that pretty plant. Oh, and God created that for me to see and enjoy, for you to see and enjoy. And not only that, it was good for food. It it was beautiful and bountiful. God not only provides for us our emotions, but he provides for our appetites. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a little foreshadowing of what's to come. One commentator said, and I agree, this is a subtle foreshadowing of the human quest for power over life. See, we, we, we try to go for power in thinking that will bring us life when all the while, if we trust in God's word, that's where life comes from. And we see the riches of God's bountiful garden a river flowed out of, the, out of Eden, out of paradise, out of pleasure and delight, out of this perfect place, out of this sanctuary, so to speak. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There it divided and became into four rivers. And so from this we see the world is nurtured by God's grace flowing from his perfect place. And this we'll see with all the gems that this perfect place has inherent value in what it is. The name of the first was the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of the land is good. Bedalim and onyx stone are there, inherent value in what God creates, all setting you up for how special we are. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And if I flip to the back of my Bible in the extra credit section there with the maps, right? Wow. I can see, whoops, my maps, a picture of this. 
And lo and behold, current map has Tigris and Euphrates on there. This obviously is not an ancient document. They must have written this after maps came out and whenever. Well, actually, it's just a record of what, what has been there, and it's an accurate account, and it's, proved, it's falsifiable. And thus, it proves that somewhere in that part of the world was this garden. We don't know exactly because, as God would have it, the other two places and where these meet, we don't know for sure. Otherwise, you could pinpoint where the Garden of Eden is. But I think God, the secret things belong to him, the things revealed belong to us and our children, has kept it that way. So we would continue to walk by faith and search for him. And this Lord God took this man that he breathed into the breath of life and he put him in the Garden of Eden, the place of paradise, to work it. To work it. And so we we see he's got the capacity to serve and now he's got the responsibility to enjoy because he's created this flourishing creation that needs somebody to work it. And this is Genesis 2. The fall doesn't come before the fall doesn't come until Genesis 3. Work is a gift of God pre-fall. The painful toil with which we work, the long weeks, the long drives, the sweat, the just the tedious aspects of our jobs, that's post-fall. More on that in two weeks. But we're to work it. All work is a gift from God, whether it's 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, whether it's housework, whether it's yard work, whether it's homework. 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 It's a gift from God. You just made that? Yeah, I did. I just made that connection. Work to subdue, create to, to cultivate the earth and subdue it. When, when our teachers give us work to do, it is a part of us looking at this is God's giving me an opportunity to learn about his creation. Whether today that be math or science or English or Spanish. It's work. And it's a gift from God to take and learn so that we can go out and subdue His earth. And it says keep it. The idea of keeping it is defending the creation. So we're to develop the creation and you can't develop uh, if you're wanting to be In sports medicine, you can't further help develop that industry unless you know something about the human body. If you want to do aerospace engineering, you need to know some physics. And so that's why teachers give homework. Oh, I see. So I'm a student, and this fits in with Genesis 2. Mm -hmm. And housework, that mothers make houses home. So it's a gift from God when I do certain things in a home, even though it's not seen by all, but it's seen by the only one that really matters. It's a gift of God. Work it and keep it. Defend the creation. And so we're to develop the world and make it better and defend the world in the name of the Creator. And so the first command of the Bible was to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And that leads us right second command. God made Adam. He puts him in this perfect place and he immediately gives him something to do. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely, I like the New American Standard, you may freely, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden. Let me just stop right there. Here are God's words. He says, be fruitful and multiply. And he's going to give this command here. God's words were never meant to bring you down. They're always meant to free you. He even begins with what you can do. Love that. You you can eat from any tree. 
here is your freedom. Go, have fun. But, for his reasons, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. He begins with what you can do. He then moves on to what we cannot do, or what Adam could not do, and that is, not only is the Bible a book of an abundance, eat freely, it's a book of accountability. And then he says, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. God is absolutely clear on the consequences for disobedience. The Bible is clear and severe on judgment. What you can do, what you can't do, and the consequences for disobedience. Eat freely. Eat freely and avoid this one tree. Why would God say that? Why that tree? There's lots of speculations, but why he said it, I think, is this. You're going to trust me. From the beginning of time, long before any of this was written, man in the image of God was going to trust his word. Did you catch that? Long before that was written, mankind in the image of God was going to trust God's word. Spoken word, now we have his written word. Be free and trust me. You have the capacity to serve me and now you have the responsibility to enjoy this creation. Cultivate it, subdue it, work it, keep it. Trust me. Trust me. If you don't trust me, you will die. In Hebrew, that is die, die. That means you're going to die. I mean, in English, in Hebrew, it's really interesting. It's, it's the same. <laughs> You're going to die. The consequences are death, both physical and spiritual. Physical death, we see that in Romans 12. Sin came through one man. It's key. And death through sin. Spiritual, they will be separated from God. At the end of chapter 3, they're outside the garden. The death of our physical bodies are nothing more than a picture of the spiritual reality. Why is it painful when people die? It's because they depart from us and they are separated. And that God has so worked it into life, it should always remind us of what happened in chapter 3. Adam, you, you can go anywhere. Just trust me with this. I'm looking out for you. I created you I know what's best for you. And so with those two commands, man was and is to go throughout the world trusting God's word to take his glory throughout the globe. That's it. Jesus said it in a little different language, but it's the same thing. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I command you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Go from where you're at to the earth and bring glory to my name. We were a people created for glory. I just want to read you something here. and I know some people don't like, like it when pastors read books and sermons, but Chuck Swindoll is good at it, and I will never get as good as Chuck Swindoll is until I practice, but this is good. We're hardwired for glory. Admit it. You're a glory chunky. That's why some of you enjoy the 360 degree between the legs slam dunk. Yeah, I see four of you over there. That's why we look at the amazing hand-beaded formal gown or the seven-layer triple chocolate mousse cake. It's why you're attracted to the hugeness of the mountain range. Amen. Or the multi-hued splendor of a sunset. You were hardwired by your creator for glory orientation. It's inescapable. It's in your genes. The groundhogs don't compete 
for who made the most glorious underground den. The penguins don't score one another as they dive off the ice into the frigid sea. There is no penguin announcer who says, that was a 9.3, had a high technical merit, but lacked artistic creativity. We're different. We'll wait in in a 90-minute line for a ride on the ultimate roller coaster. We'll dream for days about the glory of the upcoming Thanksgiving feast. We'll work like crazy to achieve one glory moment in some area of our life. I, I have out here in a note that one goal in soccer, for those of us who appreciate that sport, that eagle putt, whatever it is, that that one cast where you land it right, that trout bites, and you for a second just go, yeah. We're simply made for glory, but not just the shadow glories of the created world. We were made for glory, the one glory that is transcendent, glory of God. And when you grasp this, your life begins to make a difference. There are many people who have lived lives of purpose didn't really make a difference. Every person's life is purposeful because every human being lives in pursuit of something. So it is not enough to determine to have purpose. Let me state it this way. It is a good thing to have purpose, but if your purpose isn't tied to glory, you still have denied, catch that, denied your humanity. And he goes on to talk about four glories, the first of which is the umbrella through which the rest fall underneath. The first is God's glory. We were made to be more connected to what is above us than what is below us. To put it another way, our lives are designed to be shaped more by our attachment to the Creator than by the creation. The transcendent glory that every human being quests for, whether they believe it or not, is not a thing. It is a person and His name is God. We are to live for the One who is glory and we must never shrink the size of our glory focus to the narrow glories of our own little lives. We are also made for stewardship glory. That's the idea of working it and keeping it. We are constructed to do more than just to take care of ourselves. We are called to care for a wide variety of amazing things that God has purposefully crafted as we are reflectors of His glory. Community glory. We'll get into that in just a second. So we have the capacity to serve God. We have the responsibility to enjoy Him. And we'll see that we were made for community. We were made for community. Verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. It is not good that man should be alone. This is the, func- this is the function of humanity and God's creation. It isn't good for man to be alone. That's the first negative of this entire book. It is not good for humans to be alone. God did not create us, by the way, because He was lonely. He's forever lived in perfect harmony. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We know them as the Trinity. They are forever joyful. They are forever in perfect community. So it was not out of some need that God had that he created man. If God had a need, he would not be God. It is not good thus for us, man, to be alone. And this doesn't mean, as some feminists do, now we get to make male bashing jokes. But God said, I, I, the Lord God, will make a helper fit for him. Now, now watch what he does. He's saying man is incomplete. Not man in and of himself, but man in the idea of community is incomplete without another human. So what does he do? Now out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. 
So Adam imitates God here. For the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. Would love to have been there when he did that. How long did that take? Sparrow. He probably didn't use English. You know, that's where we live. (laughs) Giraffe. Wow. Or did he use, you know, scientific names? Right? Whoa. Elephant. And so here, imaging God, he names the animals. The one who names has the authority. God named things. In chapter 1, man now in his... It's inherited, it's derived, but he names the animals. It's like Zachariah and Elizabeth in the book of Luke. His name shall be John. All the other people were asking, what are you going to name him? Because they have the right to name him. But no animal was found like Adam. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him or a helper suitable to him or a helper corresponding to the man. The word helper is one who supplies strength in an area that is lacking in the helped. The term does not imply that the helper is either stronger or weaker than the helped. Fit for him or matching him is not the same as like him. A wife is not just her husband's clone, but she complements him. It's from the English Standard Version Study Bible on the word Hebrew word ezer. Helper. Man needed a helper. Man was supposed to name the animals and lead, yet he needed a helper. There was mutual dependence and ordered governance, just like the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father and the Son can send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit never ever, what's the term used for him in the New Testament? Helper. Forgot about that. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are mutually the same. God, God, God. But the Holy Spirit, you never see the Holy Spirit saying, God, here's what we're going to do. I need you to go do this, God the Father. And you never see him complaining about it. Ever. So God created us similarly. We are different by design. And should you have any trouble with that word helper, let me just run for you through cross-references. Psalm 10. There's a helper to the fatherless. It is God. King David said in Psalm 54.4, God is my helper. Psalm 72.12, the poor and the needy need a helper. It is God. Psalm 118.7, there's the persecuted and they need a helper. It is God. And in Psalm 121, it says, where does my help come from? Where does my help come from? My help comes from Yahweh, from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Ladies, women of Eagle Bible Church, There is a high calling for womanhood. When God uses the term helper for Eve to help Adam, it is not a lesser position. Despite what the world says, to be a help to a man is a divine thing. Did you know not one ancient Near Eastern account of creation ever talks about woman? Ever. 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 Yet at the beginning of our Bible, the Bible that just bashes women, just puts women in their place, maybe wrongly used in a abused by ungodly people. But right here, uh, that's the same word used for God. Women, young women, don't buy into feminist theology. 
the God of the Bible made you special. And you're to be a helper. I have a definition, not mine, that I want to show you for biblical womanhood. At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men. If you're studying the book of Ruth, you're thinking, that's Boaz. In ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. There's your biblical definition of womanhood. There is help. It's mature. It's feminine. It's freeing. It affirms, receives, and nurtures leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. Dr. Wayne Grudem, Dr. John Piper wrote that together in the book, Rediscovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. How did God do this? How did God create the helper? So the Lord God, who's also a surgeon, we moved from a potter to a surgeon, caused a deep sleep to fall. He's an anesthesiologist, (laughs) long before drugs. Caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up, closed up its place with flesh. He's a good doctor. Puts the man out does a little surgery, sews it back up. And you may have heard this before, and it doesn't get any better, but Matthew Henry says it best. He did not take the woman from his head so she should top him. He did not take the woman from his foot so he should trample her. He took the woman from his rib. It's a great picture. So that he would love her. Protect her, right? Any of you guys get near my wife in some inappropriate way? Put my arm around her and I put my fist over there, right? She's from my rib. He's equal, side to side. My head, side to side. No topping, no trampling, and incidentally, Matthew Henry probably knew this, but he didn't say it. There's where the struggle comes from. You'll see it in three. She wants to top. He wants to trample. Oh, Satan is good. Equals to be protected and loved. And there's something about that. You you go down to, maybe not here in this valley, but you take your wife out to dinner and it's dark. Come out of the restaurant. You just... Just all of a sudden get a little image of God in you. It's from my wife. If anybody walks around the corner, I don't know karate, but I will do all sorts of flailing. It will look like it because I'm protecting her, my helper. She's my helper. She's not below me. She's not above me. She's created in the image of God just like me. That's what it says in Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are equal. But I'm to lead her, provide for her, and protect her. I have a high calling as a man. If you just take the the language of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I'm to be a ruler, I'm to be a worker, a protector, a teacher. We'll see that in Genesis 3. A husband and a father, all encompassing a leader. God created man. God created man in his image. God created man in his place. So men, there's a definition for us. At the heart of mature masculinity, they're they're different. One's feminine, one's masculine. We We don't buy CKB. My wife doesn't wear something that can smell like a man. And I don't wear something that can smell like a woman. She wears flowery products and I wear soapy products. Or earthy product, you know, outdoorsy. I've got cologne that says it's called ice fishing, right? She likes that. <laughs> Masculine, feminine—they're not the same. We're not. We're not. We're not. And so, some feminist theologians 
take Galatians 3.8.28 out of context. We'll look at that next week and abuse it. No, at the cross, there's neither man nor woman. If you start going down that road, then you open the wide this idea of homosexuality and transsexuals. No, different. Man from his rib, woman. Masculine, feminine. At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense. It's a disposition. It's a, it's a thought to a benevolent responsibility to lead, provide, and protect women in ways that are appropriate to differing relationships. Lead, provide, and protect. I think you put lead and underneath that's provide and protect. Physically, financially, protect physically, financially, spiritually. That's our high calling, men. That's your high calling, Young men, young women, the world will tell you different. I'm telling you, from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, this is what, who you are and why you're here. We are men and we are women. We are different. We are different by design. We are called to lead. Women are called to help. Equal in creation, submissive in roles, just like the Trinity. Just like the Trinity. And when this is done well, this isn't a problem. And when this is done well, this isn't a problem. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made, and I love the word, he fashioned, he built. He didn't form, he fashioned. We're different. Down to the very words that the author uses. He fashioned the woman. She's fashionable. And he brought her to the man. And here we see Adam's first words recorded in Scripture. Now, he may have had, well, he, we know he had other words. He was naming animals, at least. So how are you doing, God? Oh, I'm good. Uh, I made you. I know I love you. I praise you for that. So you want me to name the animals? Yeah. So there are probably other conversations going on. But here is our first written words of Adam. And he does poetry. Men, we have three weeks until thanks or until Valentine's. Get your pen out. Give it a whirl. Adam was very simple. This at last, after naming all these animals, and there was none adequate, this at last. It's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. I'm an Ish, she's an Isha. We fit. We're different. But we're made in the image of God, called with a special purpose. And I'll stop right there and we'll finish chapter 2 next week. Turn your handout over and you'll see seven things, seven characteristics of humanity in relationship to the Creator King. Number one, we are representatives. We are vice regents. Right now we have a vice president. That means in place of the president. If something should happen to our commander in chief, there's one who would rule in his place. And so it is with us. We are vice regents. It's a Puritan word. I like it. We are made in the image of God. The idea of image there is that we are made not exactly like God, but in his likeness. And we are made to represent him on earth. We are his servants. He is the king, and we are his images, his servants to go out and carry out his rule. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Let us make man in our image. He, did never, he never once made an animal in his image. We are not made in the image of animals or angels. We are made in the image of the Almighty. We are called in Genesis 1, 28 to reproduce. Not just physically, that is a part of the creation process. And I think that's the blessing that God gives to us that when we are married and in a right union and then we come together as man and wife and he provides a baby, it's a small part of the process. You get to go, that's how much God cares for humanity. That's why there's Sanctity of Life Sunday. 
because we're created in the image of God. We're altogether different than animals. We are above animals. We are not equal with animals. And not only physically, but spiritually. If you were to look at Mark 3, they say, Jesus, here's your mother and brothers. And he looks around at them and says, who are my mother and brothers? Those who do the will of God are my mothers and brothers. So there's a spiritual family. And Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, my one true child in the faith. We are to reproduce physically and spiritually. And we are to fill the earth so that his glory fills the earth. And until he comes, we are to renew this earth. We are to cultivate it. We are subduing it. We're keeping it. We're working it. And it's in, it's in, it's, it's in everyone. From the youngest of days to the oldest of days, we are all called to do something. If I walk downstairs into my basement, I've never once talked about crabs or aquariums. But my boys are putting together a place where the crabs can walk around. They're creative. They're taking the basement and subduing it with pillows and an imagination. And right then and there, I get to say, awesome. You're so creative, just like God. My daughter, she's a little more formal. She writes stories about flowers. All of us, mothers, you make the house a home. Fathers, you you provide and you protect And every man in here and every job in here start to view it as I'm imaging God. I'm cultivating and I'm subduing, whether that's just doing maintenance work, whether that's filling out proposals, whether that's doing... I look at electricians and I look at plumbing and and men who are skilled like that in awe. I do. You don't think I do. I do. Men who remodel and can take wood and make things like this, I look at that and go, that's awesome. Because that's not me. (laughs) And I just look at it and I go, man, that is cool. You mean if I stuck my thumb in that socket, I'd be like, yeah, you don't want to do that. Okay. But you with your tools can just bring the computer to life. And yeah, it's amazing to me. It's fixed. Cultivate the earth and subdue it. Right? I am in awe of a guy that gets on a horse and says, we're going to take this horse and we're going to tame it. And I'm going to show you how it's done. And I look at that and I go, wowzers. Because <laughs> that's cool. I get around horses and I, how are you doing? This guy walks up to it. I'm going to ride it and make it tame. I look at women, how they cook. <laughs> I go, that's neat, because I can't. I, I, I take bowls, and I take cereal and milk. It's, it's a fascinating exercise. And it comes together for food. But some ladies, they're just like queens in the kitchen. They just, this goes here, this goes, it's effortless. And they're talking to you, and they're not cutting their thumbs off. They're just, so, wow. People who who are greeters, right? And they always have like a smile on their face and you walk in and you, they, I, I want to shop here. I want to shop right here because of you, because you're making this sterile, big box of a place warm and friendly because you're imaging God. That's renewing the world. That's what it means to cultivate and subdue and to rule. We're going to rule. Animals don't rule. We rule came out funny. Animals don't rule over the earth. We rule over the earth. Not we rule. In community, just like the Trinity, one's a leader, one's a helper. And we rule over creation. And we are to do it with respect. God is our creator. He's our sustainer. He's our king and he's our lawgiver. And he designed us differently. We are to respect the roles. And after we do all of this, we're to rest. God the Father modeled it. And and that should say, and God the Father commanded it. Sleep is a gift. Did you know that? Psalm 127. He gives his children sleep. I learned that. When I first got married, I never took a nap because I was too busy to take a nap. I was very important. My wife said, take a nap. 
no, i got to study and whatever. No, take a nap. Welcome to the couch. Wow. <laughs> I know, it's going late. But this afternoon, I'm taking a nap. Turn the television on real low just so you can hear who's winning the game, but you really doze off. And you're sleeping. You're napping because God gave you rest. And for some, your rest may come on other days. Me and Tebow, we work today, right? We take another day of rest. But you need to rest. God modeled it. He commanded it. Naps are good. They're divine. Take a, take a rest every week from your work. Take a rest every week from your play. That's why we come here together. And finally, we come here for a reason, to revere. We revere God. This world is our place of worship. We, we gather together on Sundays to show that, so that we go out. And God is worthy of our praise. That's what, that's what we're supposed to do as people created in the image of God. But you know and I know there's another chapter, Genesis 3, where it all went wrong. So, what is our hope? I mean, if that's what man is created to be, who's our hope? Well, if you go from Genesis 2, Genesis 1 and 2, and this idea of creation and ruling and subduing the earth, and you move to Psalm 8, you you read King David's reflection, I think, on those two chapters. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. God's going to do it His way, and it's going to be amazing to still the enemy and the avenger. And then, then David, quite possibly outside, looking up, says, When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion, that is to rule over the works of your hands, that is the entire earth. You have put him, put all things under his feet, all sheep and all oxen and all beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, whatever passes through the pass of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There's the praise of God from King David. But even we know King David fell short of his divine calling. But there was one man. You know him. You know him by name. You talk to him. And the author of Hebrews talks about him, and he actually uses Psalm 8. So you've got creation of man in 1 and 2, a king's reflection on that creation, and then you see in Hebrews 2 the king of kings and the connection. Now, it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And for those of you that have a hard time with addresses in in Scripture memory, it's been testified somewhere. Got to love that. Somewhere in the Bible, this is the author of Scripture, right? Hebrews, we don't know who he is, but he says somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels and you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And you're thinking, well, who's he talking about? And he gives you his answer. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, Jesus, he has left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjected to him, but we see him for a little while who is made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of his suffering and death, so that by grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Death is a reality. We'll see that in two weeks. And Jesus Christ is this perfect representation. The Hebrews 1.3 calls him the exact representation of God. He is the one that the type of David who reflected on that wrote this psalm, and it says he came to fulfill it. So if you want an image of God to model your life after, his name is Jesus. And he saved you and I from our sins. Father, may we never forget that you are sovereign over this spectacular creation. 
may we also never forget that you made us special and specific. May we reflect on the fact that abortion is killing those who have been created in your image. May we look at every person in this room and every child that's outside this room and and see them the way you do. Special. Specific. Boys and girls, men and women. May we love them like the perfect man who came because that image was marred. May we honor him. May we glorify you. May we become more conformed to the image of the likeness of Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.